Welcome back, True Crime Warriors. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. Today, I will be picking up where I left off last time in the 1975 killing spree taking place in Colorado Springs. Be sure that you listen to part one before listening here, because if you don't, you're going to be lost. All right. In the meantime, I hope that you guys had some time to subscribe to my YouTube channel. My handle there is Mama Margot with a T at the end. All right. A quick recap. It was summer 1975. I told you about seven murders that occurred from June 17th through August 30th. When we left off, two men had been charged with the murder of Ricky Davis. Those men were Mitchell Martin and a Fort Carson soldier by the name of Michael Corbett. A man had recently been arrested in New Orleans, Louisiana, and he said he had information about three Colorado Springs murders. He was willing to spill the beans for immunity. And with that deal in hand, the witness, Larry Dunn, was getting ready to talk. Now, without further delay, join me today as I conclude the story of the 1975 Colorado Springs summer killing spree. Now, let's dig in. Colorado Springs DA Chuck Heim and Detective Smith sat in front of Larry Dunn waiting to hear what he had to say. Now, before I tell you what he actually said and then later testified to, let me tell you who he was at the time of the murders. Larry Dunn was a Fort Carson soldier who lived with a man named Freddie Glenn. Freddie Glenn was a young, and I mean young, he was 18 years old, and he was a civilian working on Fort Carson. So, First, Larry Dunn spoke about Daniel Van Lone. Remember, he was the father of four who worked his shift as a cook at the Four Seasons before he was murdered. Dunn says that he was with his friends, Michael Corbett, who we already know, and Freddie Glenn, his roommate. Dunn would later explain that for some reason or another, Glenn really looked up to Corbett. Now, mind you, these guys are super young. Corbett was 20 and Glenn was 18. The trio was hanging out. Dunn remembered that he had smoked marijuana and drank some wine. While they sat around chatting, they just decided, hmm, we want to rob someone. So they jumped into a car and Corbett armed himself with a gun. While they aimlessly drove around, Dunn remembered that one of the other men mentioned that if someone could identify them, that person would have to die. At one point, they found themselves outside of the Four Seasons hunting for a victim to rob. They saw Daniel leave work and thought, oh, this guy's going to be an easy target. So they followed him to his car. And after he got in, Dunn and Corbett appeared outside the driver window. Dunn was holding the gun as Corbett instructed Daniel to get out of the car. Daniel obeyed as Dunn and Corbett walked a likely terrified Daniel back to their vehicle. And that's where Glenn was waiting. Daniel got into the car and that's when one of the men blindfolded him with a scarf. As they drove, someone mentioned that Daniel had to die. Now, of course, Daniel is sitting in the car. He could hear the conversation. 
And so as he hears this, he's trying to reason with the men. He told them about his wife and the four kids, and he practically begged for them to let him go. As they got to Janitel Road, Corbett, Dunn, and Daniel exited the vehicle. Glenn, the young guy, stayed inside. Dunn still had the gun at this point, but when they got a little bit away from the car, Corbett motioned for the gun and Dunn handed it over. They ordered Daniel to lay down on the ground and that's when Corbett executed him. After the shooting, Dunn checked Daniel's pockets for money because remember, they were doing this for the money. And when they reached in, all they found were two quarters, a measly 50 cents. They killed a husband and a father of four for 55 cents. Now, if that doesn't make you mad. Next up was the murder of Winford Prophet. According to Dunn, they knew Winford from base because they were soldiers. He said that the trio organized a bogus drug buy by Prospect Lake. When the trio got down to Prospect Lake, they tried to rob Winford and he was like, come on, man. Remember, all he had was $10. According to Don, when Corbett showed a knife, Winford began pleading for his life, but Corbett stabbed him anyway. Dunn also admitted to being present when Karen was murdered. The Colorado Springs Gazette-Telegraph reported that Dunn said that in the early evening hours of June 30th, Dunn and Glenn were having a party at their apartment. Now, I don't know if this really qualifies as a party, but you know, let's just go with it. Dunn, Glenn, and their 20-year-old friend Eric McLeod had been drinking wine and smoking marijuana. Earlier that day, Dunn had taken a yellow microdot, which apparently is described as a nerve controller. When asked if Corbett was present on this day, Dunn said that Corbett was there briefly, but he had no involvement in Karen's death. Dunn continued that after a little partying, Dunn, Glenn, and McLeod left the house, and he and McLeod were armed. Dunn was carrying a 38 revolver, and McLeod was armed with a knife. So they literally get into their car to just drive around. But after a while, they got bored, and Dunn was like, hey, let's rob the Red Lobster. And the other clowns were like, yeah, all that, mm, that sounds like a great plan. That's when they attempt to rob the Red Lobster. There are mixed reports on the sequence of the next events. An episode of Homicide Hunter made it seem like they attempted to rob Red Lobster first and then kidnapped Karen. But reporting from the same time period from when the crime occurred says that Dunn admitted that they saw Karen before they went inside. Those reports state that Glenn stayed in the car as Dunn and McLeod attempted to persuade Karen to get into the car. When she hesitated, Dunn showed her his gun, so she became complacent. They then put her in their front seat and then they attempted to rob the Red Lobster. In any event, after they drove off with Karen in the car, they stopped at a Quickway store to rob it. But seeing that it was closed, they stopped at the 7-Eleven up the road on East Pikes Peak Avenue. Glenn and Karen waited in the car as Dunn and McLeod robbed the convenience store of $60 in cash and some cheap 7-Eleven jewelry. Before they left, they threatened the store clerk, claiming that they'd come back for him if he called 911. After this pit stop, they drove Karen back to McLeod's house. And this is where the true terror began. Because murder is one thing. But what these men did to that poor girl is beyond gruesome. Karen, the whole time, continued to beg for her life. But ignoring her pleas, inside of McLeod's apartment, she was taken to a bedroom and Glenn was the first to rape her. 
While Glenn was raping Karen, Dunn and McLeod agreed that Karen didn't have to die. Roughly 30 minutes after their arrival, Glenn exited the bedroom and Dunn and McLeod told him that they were not planning on killing the girl. Glenn just kind of sat there or stood there or whatever, and he didn't say anything. Then McLeod entered the bedroom and he took his turn raping Karen. Then when McLeod left the bedroom, Dunn entered the bedroom and also raped Karen. Now, I remember the reenactment of this scene. Not They don't reenact the rape, but they do reenact the act of these men walking in and out of a bedroom. And it truly, truly made me sick as I was watching that episode of Homicide Hunter. So I do apologize for how you're feeling right now, but it's important to not sugarcoat these crimes, right? If you're going to listen, you have to understand how heinous these crimes are. That this group, of soldiers and non-soldiers, the groupthink in this trio of men was so strong. I mean, just the thought of it is sickening. After the men were done taking their turns, they put Karen in the car. McLeod handed Glenn a knife. They then drove to an alley, turned off the lights, and stopped the vehicle. Glenn then took Karen out of the car, and at first it appeared as though they were going to let her go. But then Glenn grabbed Karen's head and yanked it back as he slashed and inserted the knife into Karen's neck. She turned and tried to fight him as the two of them fell to the ground. Glenn then stabbed her a few more times in the back. Then he jumped into the car and they drove off. Then Glenn and Dunn went back to their place where they smoked marijuana before bed. McLeod returned to his house. Once the authorities who had flown from Colorado Springs all the way to New Orleans heard what Dunn had to say, they were utterly shocked. Not only shocked that the murders, at least three of them, were connected, even though seemingly appearing to be unconnected, but they were also reeling from the idea that these were soldiers and military civilians committing this heinous serial killing spree. After Larry Dunn held up his part of the bargain, he did zero time for his involvement in the murder of three innocent people. Eric McLeod, the man involved in Karen's rape and murder, was ultimately charged with kidnapping, rape, murder, and robbery. He eventually pled guilty to rape and robbery while the murder and kidnapping charges were dropped. McLeod was sentenced to 15 to 20 years in prison. Michael Corbett was indicted for the murders of Daniel Van Loan, Winford Prophet, his roommate, Winslow Watson, and the shooting death of Ricky Lewis outside of the nightclub. He was facing capital murder charges for the murder of Winford Prophet. Freddie Glenn was indicted for the murders of Karen Grammer, Winslow Watson, and Daniel Van Loan. He was facing capital murder charges for the murder of Karen Grammer. It should be noted that the charge against Glenn involving Corbett's roommate were later dropped. Mitchell Martin, the man with Corbett who allegedly ambushed the six people outside of the nightclub, he was charged with accessory to murder in the murder of Ricky Lewis. Martin, however, maintained that all he did was be the getaway driver. He put all the blame on Corbett. He said he was the one who shot all six people. But more on that in a little bit. Glenn and Corbett chose to go to trial. Glenn's capital trial for the murder of Daniel Van Loan took place first in February of 1976. You might recall that Glenn stayed in the car when Daniel was shot, but this was felony murder. 
the act of someone dying during the commission of a felony offense. It's kind of like the price of committing a crime. You can't just throw up your hands while you're committing a crime and say, it's not my fault she died of a heart attack. All I did was point a gun at her. Yeah. Well, the law doesn't really work that way. It's like a cause and effect type of thing. Anyway, Glenn took the stand in his own defense in the shooting death of the father of four, and he painted a picture of being afraid of Corbett because Corbett, according to him, was built tough, strong, you know? Earlier in the day of the murder, Glenn testified that he had taken a few hits of acid. He also smoked marijuana, drank a little bit of wine, and he blamed his inability to stop the madness on being high. Well, after deliberating for five hours, the jury found Glenn guilty of first-degree murder in the death of Daniel Van Loan, a married father of four who was just trying to get home after working his shift at Four Seasons. Glenn was later sentenced to life in prison for this murder. Corbett's capital murder trial for Daniel's murder, remember, Corbett was the alleged triggerman, well, his trial started soon after. Corbett's case was virtually the same as in Glenn's case. But in this case, they also brought in witnesses who said Corbett either said some crazy things or acted really weird after Daniel's murder. According to a news source, one witness said that the day after Daniel was killed, Corbett told him that he had to, quote, blow someone's brains out. And then he said all he got was 50 cents. One witness said that after Daniel's murder, he was driving Corbett somewhere that involved driving down Janitelle Road where Daniel had been murdered. As they drove by the area, there were lots of cop cars there. And the friend wondered out loud, kind of like, oh, my God, I wonder what's happening. To which Corbett responded, yeah, better you don't know. Corbett did not take the stand in his defense, nor did he present any evidence except that the attorney offered that Corbett wasn't the shooter. It was done. Well, the jury didn't buy it, and Corbett was also convicted in Daniel Van Loan's murder. He was later sentenced to life. In March of 1976, Glenn's capital murder trial in the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Karen Grammer began. The star witness at this trial was Larry Dunn, a man who admitted to raping Karen, yet here he was testifying cozy against his old-time pal. Well, the defense used Dunn against himself, saying that Glenn was so high that day, he either didn't do it or couldn't have done it. According to them, the real killer was Larry Dunn. In a twist at trial, the prosecution called Michael Corbett to testify against Freddie Glenn. Now, remember, for almost all of this, Corbett and Glenn remained mostly silent. But now Corbett, a convicted murderer at this point, was being called as a witness. I'm not surprised that Corbett exercised his right under the Fifth Amendment to not self-incriminate, but he did make some statements. And in essence, this is what he testified to. He basically said, on June 30th, he entered Glenn's home at one point where he saw a lot of acid and marijuana. He testified that he saw Glenn smoke and drink quite a bit. When asked to describe his friend at the time, Corbett simply said he wasn't himself. He appeared to be spaced out. The jury deliberated two and a half hours and they found Glenn guilty of all the charges. Glenn was later sentenced to death in the murder of Karen Grammer. The next trial on the docket began in April of 1976. This was the capital murder trial of Winford Prophet. Michael Corbett stood trial. In this court, the prosecution honed in on Corbett's training in martial arts. 
he had some good moves, I guess. But most importantly for trial, he was trained in weaponry, specifically knives. The prosecution argued that 17-year-old Jeffrey was lucky to make it out alive on Prospect Lake that fateful night that Winford was killed. And listen, one of the things about Corbett that you need to know is that after a killing, he loved to talk. And this occasion was no different. The prosecution brought out a parade of witnesses who had heard about Winford's murder straight from the horse's mouth. One witness said that a few days after the Prospect Lake murder, Corbett admitted to killing a man who was trying to buy marijuana from him. Not only was Corbett just yapping, he actually showed the witness the alleged murder weapon, the knife. And then he even went as far as showing the man an alleged blood-stained t-shirt and was like, look, proof, I stabbed somebody. But the witness just recognized some gray marks on the t-shirt and dismissed Corbett's story. Another witness said that Corbett confessed to stabbing a man after a failed attempt at robbing him in a park. Corbett then showed the witness an article about Winford's death and said, yeah, the guy ran to some lady's porch and then I guess he died. At trial, Corbett's defense didn't say he didn't do it. Instead, they argued that he was guilty of second degree murder at most, because according to them, the crime was so hasty and impulsive, their words, not mine, the focus was more on the lack of intent. After deliberating for four hours, Corbett was found guilty of the first degree murder of Winford, and he was later sentenced to death. I just wanted to add a footnote here about Glenn's trial for the same murder, the murder of Winford Prophet. We couldn't find information on what happened at that trial, except that we do know that Freddie Glenn was found guilty in Winford's murder as well. In June of 1976, Corbett's charges for the murder of Ricky Lewis were dropped due to evidentiary issues. What we gathered was that Corbett's statement about the crime was suppressed by the court and the eyewitness testimony was vastly conflicting. The fact that Corbett had already been sentenced to death probably had something to do with them dropping the case. Nineteen seventy seven started off with another murder trial for Corbett. This time he was on the hot seat for the murder of his roommate Winslow Watson the third. But Corbett didn't fight this one. Instead, on january fourth, nineteen seventy seven, Corbett pled guilty. As reported by the Colorado Springs Gazette, Corbett killed Winslow because he stole a loaf of bread from a neighbor who later complained to Corbett. Days after the complaint, Corbett and Winslow were sitting by the road drinking wine. Corbett handed his gun to Winslow. Winslow grabbed the gun and marveled at the weapon. Then he simply returned it to Corbett. Corbett then said, quote, that's not how you handle it. This is how you handle it, end quote. And then he callously pointed the gun at Winslow and pulled the trigger three times. Wow. Of all the murderers in this story, I think this one shows us that Corbett was likely the worst of them all. For Winslow's murder, Corbett was sentenced to life in prison. Throughout the years since the convictions, Glenn and Corbett have unsuccessfully filed appeals. But then, in October of 1978, the Colorado Springs Supreme Court overturned the state's death penalty, causing all death sentences in the state to be commuted to life sentences. And as wild as it seems, at the time that the murders in this case were committed, 
A life sentence simply meant life with the possibility of parole. Yes, I know, it's absurd. Corbett was first eligible for parole in 1996, but he was denied at every single hearing. While in prison, Corbett earned two associate degrees, one in sociology and one in social studies, and he worked on his bachelor's degree. In 2010, in an attempt to get parole, Corbett told the board, quote, I could never express the sorrow that I feel for the victims and the families and society in general. I have concerns. I have love. There was a time when I didn't have any of this, end quote. Freddie Glenn was first eligible for parole in October of 2006. His parole has been denied every time. Over the years, Glenn, who was only 18 at the time of his arrest, claims that he got mixed in with the wrong crowd. He has said that once he was in, he feared he'd die at the hands of his friends if he didn't commit crimes with them. Glenn and Corbett have stayed behind bars for all of these years because of the dedication of prosecutors, investigators, and the victim's family members. Kelsey Grammer has continued to advocate for his sister, and he keeps her memory alive by participating in the parole hearings. In one letter, he wrote to the parole board, quote, She was my best friend and the best person I knew. I loved my sister, Karen. I miss her. I was her big brother. I was supposed to protect her. I could not. I was supposed to save her. I've never gotten over it. It very nearly destroyed me, end quote. So you might be wondering, where are they now? Well, while in prison, Corbett passed away from kidney failure on June 24th, 2019. Glenn is still alive and kicking. He is currently incarcerated in the Fremont Correctional Facility in Cannon City, Colorado. His next parole hearing is in November of 2027. Now, if you're counting, you might recall that I told you the story of seven murders, but there were only convictions for four murders. The charges for the murder of Ricky Davis were ultimately dropped. But there are still two cases that I shared with you that remain unsolved. The very first story I told you about was a 19-year-old soldier named Jerry Ramesh who was gunned down while sleeping in his car. That gang-like crime has never been solved. But the other murder, also connected to Fort Carson, is the murder of cab driver Milton Abramson. Before I wrapped up this script, I did what I normally do. I did one last online search about Milton. And yeah, it is still unsolved. But as I was digging, I found the most bizarre story from 2011 about his daughter. And so I wanted to share it with you today. At the time of Milton's murder, he was married and had a 15-year-old daughter named Linda. 14 years after Milton died, his wife died of a stroke in 89. Linda, at that time, she was closer to her 30s. She was left with the daunting task of cleaning out her parents' house. So as she was sitting there cleaning out, she realized that her parents were hoarders, but not the kind with like boxes upon boxes and cat feces all over the place. No, no, no. They were more like cash money hoarders. And this is, you know, I don't know, a little bit not unheard of for the 80s and 90s. According to an article written in 2011 in the Gazette, Linda found cash stuffed in her father's suit pockets. She found government bonds from the 1940s in a kitchen drawer, and she found a box of cash. Now, do you care to guess how much it all came out to? A cool $1 million. I mean, over $1 million. I mean, listen, I wish I had parents who saved like that. Damn, all my parents gave me was anxiety and a fear of dying alone, but 
I guess. Who am I to complain? <laughs> okay, seriously, I hope my mom and my dad are not listening. And if they are, I love you guys. Thanks for making me so awesome. <laughs> well, what is one to do with so much inheritance? Linda did exactly what her parents did. She put it all in a little box and she hid it under her bed. A year later, she married. Later, she had twins. And eventually down the line, she opened up her own hair salon called Hair Drama. Well, the reason why I found this story intriguing, partly because it mentioned that her father's death was still unsolved, but also because 20 years after Linda found that money, she had been sentenced to three years of jail time for tax evasion. Now, I don't want to get too into the weeds, but it appears that she used some of her inherited cash to buy and sell products and then fail to report the income to the IRS. Thus, the IRS came after her for failing to report $1.6 million of revenue. The crazy thing is that apparently, Linda and her husband believe they were allegedly reported to the IRS when there was a family dispute over grandparent visitation rights. What? Yes, okay. Now I am way out of the realm of murder talk. But anyway, I will link that article in the show notes if you're interested in reading it. Before I go, I would be remiss if I didn't say that when I first planned on covering this case, I had actually thought this entire episode would be about the murder of Karen Grammer. I had no idea that she had been killed by a couple of serial killers running rampant out of Fort Carson. Thank you all so much for your continued support. As I mentioned previously, my goal is to get back to a weekly show. So if you'd like to see that happen, consider supporting the show by joining the Patreon or Apple Premium. I'm in the market for editing help and the promotion slash social media aspect of the podcast. So seriously, when I say every little bit helps, I truly mean it. And of course, if you share the podcast with a friend or in a Facebook group, that is the best, and I mean it, best and most amazing support to offer an independent podcaster like myself. All right, shout out to Haley Gray for her research assistance on this episode. My sources for this episode include Court Opinions, articles in the Daily Sentinel, Colorado Springs Gazette, Telegraph, Colorado Springs Sun, the Denver Post, and Tampa Bay Times. I also watched a Homicide Hunter episode that focused on Karen Grammer's murder, but also briefly mentioned the murders of Daniel Van Lone and Winford Prophet. Military Murder is a Mama Margot production. This episode was produced in collaboration with my Patreon and premium subscribers. Executive produced by Bob, Falcon 13, Nicole, Jen, Tina S, and Alicia. The music was created by TyOps. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. Working on our podcast. I don't want to.